Drew Balbin, Timo Nebras, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. This is a weekly Monday appearance, except because he contracted pneumonia. It's occurring on a Tuesday. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest in this edition of the pod. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. Brian Dozier and Jose Quintana are quite likely, very likely, or quite likely to be traded before the beginning of the 2017 season. To whom and for what? The questions I asked Dave Cameron about Eich, Eicher one, either one of those players. Each one and either simultaneously Eicher one. We also discuss power and pick up on a conversation that I believe I had with Eric Longenhagen, lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen, separating home run power from overall power. The latter one, of course, is the more important. Home run power, however, frequently serves as a proxy for the latter. And yet there are certain players who possess power, but not necessarily an abundance of home run power and vice versa. Todd Frazier hit more home runs than doubles in 2016, for example. We discussed that. Also, Dave Cameron has a novel idea for how teams could rebuild instead instead of or in addition to merely acquiring young talent, cost-controlled talent, perhaps there's another way they could build up value on their rosters. If I'm like the Phillies or whatever, I'm taking every chance on every rich hill I can find, right? Like, maybe you can't get all the 36-year-old broken free agents who had four good starts to sign with you, but you've got innings, and you've got roster spots, and you've got jobs. Anyone who you think, if I give this guy 160 innings and his stock could go up dramatically, I want as many of those guys as possible. Those trailblazing thoughts and others like them in what's to follow, what's following most immediately, however, is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek. And SeatGeek.com, you're probably familiar, listener, with how the world is populated equally by work and hassle, 50% work, and then an additional 50% of hassle. What SeatGeek does is to help you navigate both the work and the hassle. What they do is to make it easier than ever to buy tickets for sporting and concert events. Here's how they facilitate such a thing. What SeatGeek does is to pull tickets available on all other sites into one place so you can save time and never miss a deal. And even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade, assessed a grade, based on value. So like an early 21st century GM, you can exploit inefficiencies in the ticket buying market. Finally, and best of all, finally, and best, SeatGeek is always honest up front about the price. Unlike StubHub, what SeatGeek does is to show you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end of a transaction, and never to assess fees or mysterious fees. For enduring this message, listeners are entitled to a $20 rebate, and here's how to claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, click add a promo code, enter the promo code FANGRAPHS, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, FANGRAPHS. SeatGeek will send you $20 if you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FANGRAPHS today. Your nearest possible convenience with which utterance we have nearly reached the end of this conclusion, definitely reached the end of the sponsor's message. And we move on to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does the feature managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron? And what does it begin right now? Fewer people would be happy. No, I think that's true. Yeah, certainly by percentage. Yeah. I think, yeah. like, uh, people generally like Jonah for Jonah's a likable guy. Uh, so I'm going to yeah. be more I'm gonna be more Jonah-like. Everything is awesome. Vote Tim Raines. Anyone okay. know where I can get a good Montreal bagel? 
<laughs> Montreal. Yeah, okay. I'm now very far from Montreal. But <clears throat> this, let's see. There's a word sort of an interesting, or perhaps uh, quite the opposite, uh, not very interesting part of the baseball calendar right now. It's interesting in that you have to invent your own stories. It's yeah, like you choose your own adventure, just without the, like, turn to page 24. Right, but, uh, <clears throat> I mean, a story in itself, at least some site news, um, Travis Sachek, uh, who's joined us from the Pittsburgh Tribune, the Pittsburgh Tribune, the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, maybe? Tribune Review, right. After the, after the great merger of the Pittsburgh Tribune and the Pittsburgh Review, we have the <laughs> Pittsburgh Tribune Review. Do we have any idea if that was actually like two separate entities, or did you just oh, make that up? I have to up? think it was. We will, we will, we will uh, check that at the end of okay. the. Okay. Uh, remind us. Um, but what I would like to say is that Travis says, Doctor Sachek, not a doctor, but a doctor, a doctor. He's learned, which is really what doctor <laughs> means. He he suggests that um, he actually quotes you, which I was uh, surprised to see in a positive light, and he says that. Um, that uh, what the most basic sort of uh, most basic sort of method for writing a fangraphs post is to ask a question and to answer it to exhibit curiosity. Yeah, right? well, to ask an interesting question, right? Because some people do ask like uninteresting questions. Mm-hmm. Like if I wrote a post that was like, "Is Mike Trout good?" Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, I've asked and answered a question, and I guess you know, like the the. The, top, the post would get some traffic just from the headline, probably, but people would be like, what is this crap, Cameron? <laughs> what, what is this? I think we could only do that so many times before, <laughs> before we lost all credibility. But the um, – no, no. <clears throat> right, so – well, here, well, here's a question then. Uh, let's get to Sachik's point in a minute. Is there possible – is it possible to write a post worth reading? I, I will, I'm prepared to argue yes if you want me to. Um, is it worth – a post worth reading – for which the title would be, is is Mike Trout good? Yes. I think that there is a post worth reading. I think that there's a better post with, or the, the same post would be better if it had a different headline, because the answer to that question is so obvious. It's so obvious. But don't you think that, for example, we have some, um, we, we have some talented prose writers on our staff, and I think probably, I think I've, most people would say that Jeff Sullivan, for example, yeah. um, is talented. He has a, has a very clear um, clear vision in his writing. And you, you can typically tell his writing apart from everyone else's. I think that if uh, <coughs> that if I if I saw a post written by Jeff Sullivan, for example, and the title was "Is is is Mike Trout good?" I would I would immediately assume that it was not that I would not expect there to be just like a recitation of. Uh, you know, Mike Trout's various laurels, you know, I would think that it would be, uh, there would be something. I would think there would be, a, there, he'd be winking a little bit. Does that, does that make sense? I think what you basically just described was confirmation bias, right? Like your predisposed position, your Bayesian prior is that Jeff mm-hmm. Sullivan is an interesting writer who asks interesting questions. So therefore, if he wrote a post, you would presume it would be interesting. But did you call that bias? Yeah, it's a bias. But I don't know. Well, was, okay. So perhaps, so so bias suggests to me that it's, it's a type of weakness. But I, I would actually just be learning from context, right? I mean, that's another thing humans do. And so I would expect, well, given everything else I know about about Jeff Sullivan's prose, he's not just going to tell me that Mike Trout is good. 
or mm-hmm. you know, he's not going to just uh, cite the numbers. He's got he has something else up his uh, proverbial sleeve. Right. So it's a, it's a mental shortcut that you are using to prejudge the quality of the article without having Isn't that actually a heuristic. Read. Isn't that a heuristic? Sure, you could call it a heuristic. But isn't but a heuristic like a bias that hasn't been short circuited? Yeah, that's okay. not a terrible description. Uh, okay. But what you're essentially doing is prejudging the article without having read the article, right? Like if we were to be completely objective and complete and just judge the article for what it was, you wouldn't say I'm going to take Jeff Sullivan's other articles into account to judge this article. You would say no. I'm just going to read this article on its own and judge it on its own merits. But you've prejudged it as being interesting because of the author and what the author has done previously, where if we were going to be non-biased and completely objective and just evaluating the quality of an article of, is Mike Trout good? Whether Jeff wrote an interesting post about the you know worst defensive plays of 2014 wouldn't be irrelevant. Right. I still think the context matters, but that's fine. That's fine, uh, Dave Cameron. That's fine. How the hell did we get here? Let's talk about <laughs> Uh, let me ask you uh, about Brian Dozier. Okay. He, so, well, I'm going to ask you also about Jose Quintana at some point, too. Which, which one would you care to discuss first? Uh, Dozier's fine. Okay. Dozier, uh, it's, what is it? Is it inevitable? Is it nearly inevitable that he'll be traded before the season begins? Or, or, or is something less than that? It feels that way. But mm-hmm. it, I think with the Twins having two years of control left, they don't necessarily have to trade him this winter, so they can be a little bit more... Um, conservative into saying, look, if you want him, here's the price. And if you don't want to meet this price, we'll talk again in the, in the summer or next winter or something. Um, but it does feel like there's enough interest and the twins are in a position where they can probably extract some real value for him that they should make a move and their deal probably should happen. So I wouldn't say it's like 100% Dozier's getting traded. This isn't... Um, you know, like kind of not even Chris Sale heading into the winter, but there was a pretty good. It felt pretty likely that the White Sox were going to tear this thing down, um, and Sale was going to be the first piece to go, or one of the first pieces to go. Dozier is probably ninety-two percent to get traded, or something like that. It's a very high likelihood. Is this not? Is this not a team? The uh, the Twins that has a do they have no possibility of competing? And it, and if if they don't, I have to think it has more to do with their pitching, yeah, than their than their offense. Yeah, I mean, so they've, I think the Twins are not that different than the White Sox, except that their good players are less good. Um, so, like, you could kind of squint and say, look, Byron Buxton still has a lot of talent. Uh, you know, looks like he could be a really good player. Miguel Sano, you know, a couple of years ago looked like one of the best young hitters in baseball, and last year a little less so, but still a really interesting player. Dozier's obviously very good. Um, so you, you've got some pieces. But then the supporting cast is really quite bad. And so I think realistically the Twins are another 70-75 win team. Um, it's really difficult to see how many things would have to break their way in order for them to make a real playoff push in 2017. They likely possess the more the possibility of more variance, don't they, than other clubs given the youth, the relative youth of their team? Yeah, but I think even with, like, so say you think Buxton's going to have a five-win season, right, and, like, break out as a superstar, uh, and you think Dozier's going to have another five-win season and maintain his all-star level, and Sano's going to be a three- or four-win player, and, you know, Jose Barrios is going to give them a couple, uh, 250 good innings, and Urban Santana's going to stay healthy and pitch well again, okay, I think we just made it to 79 or 80 wins. Like, like they've got variance here, but they're starting from a very low base to where you can variance your way up to 80 wins, and it would take a you know 10 or 11 win over over performance compared to base runs to get them to 90. So I think they're just still pretty far away. 
Okay. Well, so who are the true sellers at this point? Then we've we, you we've mentioned the twins briefly, and we, we can we can discuss Dozier and likely landing point in a second. Uh, but but the twins, the White Sox, of course, uh, have already gotten rid of Sale. They got rid of Adam Eaton, not got rid of, but exchanged for yeah. uh, future pieces. Um, and also the Milwaukee Brewers, I assume. Yeah. So, although I don't know that Ryan, uh, I don't know that anyone is necessarily clamoring for Ryan Braun because uh, he's well, they're not. I, yeah. it seems like, <laughs> right, because yeah. he's expensive and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know has some off-field baggage, and uh, there's a lot of right-handed power hitters who didn't fail drug tests and don't have 84 million dollars left in their contracts available this winter. Right. So what? So Brewers, Twins, uh, not not the Rockies. No, but the Reds are still sellers. Uh, they haven't traded Joey Votto yet, but I think they would move Brandon Phillips if anyone would take him. Uh, I think they'll probably try and trade Homer Bailey this summer if he tries to show that he's healthy. Uh, Phillies are still sellers. Um, they don't have a lot left to sell, but they're still sellers. Uh, Padres are definitely sellers. You can get Yanjervis Solarte if you would like. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's probably about it. I mean, there's probably only six or seven sellers in baseball at this point. Is that typical at any, any given point? I've never thought of the game this way, but is it typical you say, oh, there are X number of teams? Or um, as in other um, situations, has it been has the sort of definite sellers category been altered by the introduction of the second wild card? Yeah, I mean, I think I wrote about this mostly last year when that tanking issue kept getting brought up where people were like, this is a huge problem for the sport. If you actually look at the reality of where baseball has been and where baseball is now, the the idea that tanking is now some serious problem in Major League Baseball is a total joke because there are fewer teams selling and fewer teams punting their season than basically ever before. We have more teams trying to win now than we ever have in baseball history, uh, or at least as a percentage of them. Obviously, there are more teams now than there used to be, but... Um, as a as a total, more of the league is going for it in every year. And you mentioned like the Rockies, right? Like without the second wild card, perhaps the Rockies would be more realistic about their chances, and they wouldn't be pushing in. And you'd see teams more like the you know the Angels or the um, the Rays uh, as saying, okay, you know maybe we're not going to hang on to Chris Archer, we're not going to hang on to Mike Trout, we're not going to hang on to these guys who are franchise foundational pieces for us because we don't see a way to win our division. But now with the second wild card, you don't have to win your division. Um, and I think more teams are at least willing to go into the year and say, we're going to try and win 80. And if we'll just luck our way into 87 or 88 and get the wild card, that's great. Even 85 keeps our fans interested through September. I think more and more we're seeing teams like, um, you know, kind of like the A's who aren't necessarily traditionally contenders, but they're, you know, they haven't traded Sonny Gray. They're not blowing things up. They're not just going and doing what, say, the Padres and Phillies and Brewers have done. And even the Brewers are managing to put an interesting team on the field anyway. Right. Um, okay, so in terms of uh, Brian Dozier, who is on one of these teams who you suggest is uh, probably best suited to sell, he's an interesting beast because, as you note, uh, controlled for two more years, I think probably at a reasonable price. What do you think? Reasonable yeah, price? Way, way reasonable. He's going to make $15 million combined in the next two years, where he's worth you know probably $25 million each year. <laughs> Right, because so, he is a he's a what, second slash third baseman who's no, second baseman. He's exclusively a second baseman. You don't think he could play third base? I mean, he could, but there's no real reason to move him to third base. He's a decent yeah, enough second baseman that that's clearly his best spot. Right, and uh, yeah, that's interesting because I I actually in my mind I, I imagine Brian Dozier striking out uh, with some frequency. He does not strike out. 
No, no, he has a, what looks to be basically a league average strikeout rate, maybe yeah. slightly better than that. Yeah. He actually um, came up as a guy who uh, had no power and hardly ever struck out, and now he's turned into a guy with monstrous power who still doesn't strike out that much. Right. And, uh, I, I mean, I guess the team, what, that's been most connected, uh, most often invoked in Brian Dozier discussions is the Los Angeles Dodgers. Correct. And who do they have playing second base right now? Uh, I mean, that's probably Enrique Hernandez might be the opening day starter. Uh, yeah, they have a hole. They had Chase Utley and, uh, occasionally Howie Kendrick there last year. Both of those are gone. I mean, Utley's a free agent. Kendrick was traded to the Phillies. Um, so they've, they've got some openings. Right, they have some. Is that is that their biggest opening? I think I think probably it is, right? Because they have uh, yeah, maybe I mean, right like, field is a bit of a question mark. Yeah, but. yeah, the corner outfields are still a little weird because they don't know what they're doing with Puig, or no one really knows what they're doing with Puig. And Andre Ethier is coming off a broken leg, um, so yeah, I mean, corner outfield still not secure, but second base is the biggest spot where you'd be like, they could really use someone. Right. Yeah, they actually had they've. I mean, they've had some success in recent years without having very much settled in the corner outfield because uh, Puig is not. Did not materialize last year the way um, a, a reasonable person might have thought he might, and then uh, and then what? And then Andrew Tolles somehow right. uh, became uh, what uh, from from like low A became yeah. a regular for the club in uh, by the end of the year. Yeah, I mean they've they've mixed and matched. They have what Scott Van Slyke a couple of years ago had a good half season. Um, yeah. They've platooned pretty effectively, um, and you know even running Kike Hernandez out in center field with Jock Peterson occasionally. So their outfield has definitely been a, I mean, the whole team has been a mixed match, but especially in the outfield, they've been like, we're just going to, you know, find six guys for three spots and have it work. And that's probably going to do something close to that again this year, which is why second base is probably a spot where they don't necessarily want to run a platoon. If you're already platooning almost all your outfield spots, uh, maybe you just want an everyday second baseman. So the Dodgers have, uh, well, the Twins have Brian Dozier. Uh, the Dodgers need a second baseman. Brian Dozier would be a good choice, and they and they have Jose De Leon. So why hasn't the trade occurred yet? Well, the Twins want more than De Leon because uh, De Leon, I think, missed uh, two months last year with injuries. Uh, has a history of shoulder problems, which are going to be uh, discouraging if you're a pitcher. Um, and he was pretty terrible in the big leagues in September when he got called up. Uh, and I think you know part of the the appeal of a guy like De Leon was supposed to be kind of as he was polished, right? Like he's not necessarily an upside guy. Scouts consistently refer to him as a mid-rotation starter. So if you're getting that like not frontline guy and he's supposed to be close to big league ready and then he comes up and he's hammered, um, then you're like, okay, well, if I'm not getting upside and I'm not necessarily getting a guy I can just stick in my rotation in 2017 and know he's going to give me 150 good innings, why is this the guy that I'm trading in my all-star second baseman for? Um, so I think they're... They want daily own plus, and the disagreement is what the plus should be. Right. What is it? What, you know, what, what, what will the plus be? That's what everyone's asking. Yeah, that's the question of the year. Um, yeah. from, from my perspective, if I'm the Twins, I have a little bit more faith in DeLeon, uh, and I wrote about this a couple weeks ago before Christmas, um, as if you kind of look at his uh, peripherals and not just his results, I think there's um, some indications that DeLeon's stuff is probably being a little bit underrated, and I would not want to pass on the chance to acquire DeLeon if I was the Twins, uh, so I would probably take whatever the Dodgers were offering as DeLeon Plus, because I think DeLeon... If you give him a full season uh, in the rotation in 2017, he stays healthy, throws 160, 170 innings. I think he's, even if you think like this might, guy might not last for six years because of his shoulder issues, I think he's probably more valuable as a trade chip in a year, as a five-year controllable, low-cost starting pitcher, than Dozier is right now. Oh, interesting. 
Oh yeah, that's right. And uh, we we've seen that happen too. I believe the last time we spoke, um, we discussed the this sort of um, um, this strange phenomena of teams that are not contending. And you know, one team we didn't mention uh, in terms of sellers is the Atlanta Braves, although they right. might qualify for that. They they've been well. unwilling to sell this winter. Right, but they what we saw them do. Um, not them at all. But, of course, I think they have signed a relief pitcher. But what I actually mean was the Miami Marlins, who signed uh, Brad Ziegler, for example. Yeah. And uh, and also Junichi Tozawa. And uh, as you noted, that this is actually uh, this is actually not necessarily – was not a bad move at all because if, if either of those guys uh, is pitched decently at the deadline, then they will, they will have some appeal to teams that are contending, even if the Marlins themselves are not. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that a contending team could probably do uh, that maybe they don't do as often as as they could is forget what you're building for long-term. It feels like when teams are going to rebuilding mode, they just say, okay, I'm going to collect things that I think could, you know, be franchise pieces for me. They look for pieces that, you know, they think that we're going to build around. This guy's going to be a core piece for us the next four or five years. When if I'm like the Phillies or whatever, I'm taking every chance on every rich hill I can find, right? Like maybe you can't get all the 36-year-old broken free agents who had four good starts to sign with you, but you've got innings and you've got roster spots and you've got jobs and every one of these high-variance veterans, or Dalian's not a veteran obviously, but anyone who you think if I give this guy 160 innings and his stock could go up dramatically, I want as many of those guys as possible. So I'm staying away from the Jason Marquis of the world and the Colby Lewises. Like I don't want, I'm not going to give those guys innings, but I'm going to take shots on guys who could dramatically increase their value. I think De Leon's exactly the kind of pitcher who, coming up through the minor leagues, is generally underrated because he's a changeup guy without a plus breaking ball. You and I have talked about this numerous times over the years. Uh, these James Shields kind of pitchers, they get underrated until they get to the big leagues and they get people out, and then people are like, okay, that's fine, your stuff will play. Um, you're actually good now. And I think if the Twins could go get a bunch of guys like that and say, find some some pitchers who are uh, maybe not taken as seriously as major league starting pitchers, give them 150 innings, you get five of them, four of them, whatever, maybe one or two turn out, in a year you could, even if you think this guy's not going to be part of your team, you could sell him for way more than you had to pay to get those guys in the first place. Right. And as you mentioned, with, with a team like the Phillies doing something like that, um, they, they of course, have uh, quite a few promising starting pitchers, but uh, they may not all be ready to face major league batters yet. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think you could probably say the Phillies did this to some extent with Vince Velasquez, right? Like, they traded Ken Giles, got a lottery ticket in Velasquez and a bunch of other stuff in that deal, put Velasquez in the rotation, and, you know, by midsummer had a guy who looked like one of, potentially, like, one of the dominant young starters in baseball. I think if he had stayed healthy, the smart move might have been, uh, not that they had the opportunity to do this because he got hurt, but, um, the, and his velocity like, went away in one start and everyone got really scared. But if he had stayed healthy through July, if they could have traded him in July and said, hey, look, you know, we took a, a lottery ticket, we turned his value way up, we don't think this guy is still going to be, you know, a good starting pitcher for us in four years when we're ready to win, but we're going to turn him into some kind of win now, low cost starting pitcher who, you know, a contender with no money to spend could really like this guy and give up a bunch of stuff because they think, well, we're going to get five years of control or six years of control. These are the kinds of shots that I think the rebuilding teams can afford to take and not just focus on, I want guys who are going to be on my next good team. I think what you really want is guys whose value is going to spike in the short term. Well, what, how, why did Jeremy Hellickson end the season on, on the Phillies? 
Uh, do you want the on-the-record story or the off-the-record story? Well, I want all the stories, I suppose, but... Um, uh, so, the, so the on-the-record story is that the Phillies were hoping to get the draft pick that came with him by offering him a qualifying offer at the end of the season, having him sign as a free agent. They valued that more than... Uh, then the offers that they were made, so they didn't pull the trigger on a trade at the deadline because they thought they could get a first-round pick when he walked away as a free agent. That didn't happen, so now he's going to be back next year. Uh, rumors within the industry are that they had a deal that got scuttled for some reason at the last minute, uh, so they tried to trade him, and then it fell apart. Yeah, all right. So they, but they said they wanted the draft pick. Is yeah. it? Uh, I mean, I suppose you could calculate it all out using. Uh, <clears throat> There's been some good work, of course, about uh, draft pick valuation, right? Prospect valuation yeah. by uh, uh, Kevin, Kevin Cray. Cray. Yeah. There's and, actually. Uh, I don't actually know if you're aware of this, but we'll have an announcement about this fairly soon about potentially that work appearing on Fangraphs. Oh, that's very good. Yeah. I'm not aware of that. Is that allowed to? I mean, it's like, this is probably that? the first thing we've mentioned of it. So, Cray podcast listeners, you get a surprise sneak peek announcement coming. Not too distant future. Okay, that's good. Yeah, but that's always uh, that is oft cited. I would say yeah. in the pages of fingers yeah. that work. It's Kevin Cray and maybe Steve Dimaselli. Dimaselli, yeah. love it. And that's of course building off work by uh, I mean Victor Wang, I think Wong. Yeah, Victor I mean Wang. a lot of people have been working on prospect valuation for a while. Victor had one of the more promising uh, articles back in 2010 or 11 or something like that. I think when he was like 17, and uh, I got him hired by the Cleveland Indians. All right, very good. The uh, you know we've mentioned a couple times here pitchers who like you mentioned De Leon, you mentioned James Shields, pitchers whose uh, numbers are better than one might initially assume by looking at their stuff. Uh, Jose Quintana, this is what this is yeah. a segue, Dave Cameron. He Jose fits Quintana, the bill. he fit, he he fits it uh, very well to the point where the, uh, I, this happens right. You you have uh, you have established a. Uh, an idea about a, well a person in general you could do it but about a player certainly you've established an idea in your head and you keep that around because you yep. can't constantly be uh, you know reevaluating every one of your opinions or impressions right that's um, called a Bayesian they, prior that's okay second, sure that's yeah like our second Bayesian prior reference of the day right and so I, I have Jose Catan in my head and then every time I look at his uh, um, his his player page at Fangraphs. I, I do not. Um, it it uh, it it defies expectations. It defies my uh, what, I, the, what how I feel about him. What I think about him. Yeah, he's uh, he his performance is better than I think the perception of his reality. Right, and part of it is, I suppose, part of it, right, is that well, part of it is his pedigree or lack thereof. He was uh, he was acquired by the White Sox via the Rule Five Draft. Is that right? No, no, he was a minor league free agent. He was a minor league free agent, which yeah. is almost which is like even unheard of. Yeah, that's like um, like if if you signed by you know drafted or you signed a free agent contract, didn't you're like a senior in high school? Yeah, and then if you if you're acquired by way of Rule Five, then you're like a junior, and then um, and but if you if you're gotten if you're acquired by way of minor league free agency, you're like an eighth grader. Yeah, I mean, like we see like a lot of minor league free agents sign, but they're almost always like these four A guys who have had their shots and you know now are just going to hang around as depth. And occasionally, you know, what like Rich Hill signed as a minor league free agent, so it's not like you like no other minor league free agent has ever turned into a, <coughs> excuse me uh, a good yeah. player. But I think with Quintana, he signed as a minor league free agent when he was twenty, which. 
Usually, if an organization has signed you and have given up on you before you're 21, you are not very good, right? right like, but, uh, I guess we just mentioned Andrew Tolles is actually another example of this. Uh, the Rays had released him. The Dodgers signed him as a minor league free agent as an A-ball guy, and he got to the big leagues. But this would be like Jose Quintana as if Andrew Tolles turned into, like, the second best left fielder in baseball for the next five years. <laughs> like, that would be really surprising. And what Jose Quintana has done after, like, signing as a, you know, throwaway prospect through the White Sox got to, like, Churn some innings in the in the minors, and then has turned into like one of the best pitchers in baseball after developing in the second system. It's just a really weird career path. And how does he do it? Is it is it a question of command? So I mean, certainly he commands the ball really well. He has a an underrated changeup. I mean, that's basically like any time we're going to talk about any of these guys who's like, look at this pitcher who's really good that no one ever talks about. Ninety-eight percent of the time they're going to throw a good changeup because I think as you and I have talked about before, for whatever reason. The changeup just doesn't get respected as stuff. Uh, breaking balls do, velocity does, uh, even splitters do, and the splitter and the changeup are actually kind of the same pitch. But like a guy who throws not that hard but has a plus changeup just generally gets lumped into this idea of like he doesn't have great stuff. He's a he's a command deception guy or whatever, and they get kind of pigeonholed into like. Well, let me ask you because I think Doug Fister probably also fits into this category, uh-huh. and you and we've already mentioned James Shields. And, of course, neither of them have been particularly good in the last couple of years. Is it possible that that this sort of pitcher, the pitcher who lacks velocity and but excels nonetheless because of an excellent changeup, um, is it possible that he is more prone to uh, complete attrition than, than a pitcher who maybe also has some velocity that creates a margin for error? Absolutely. So I don't think there's any question that these guys are going to have a shorter shelf life as kind of like this quality. And then the fact that Quintana's already been this good is a little surprising. I mean, you could throw Kyle Hendricks into this mix as another guy who, you know, was one of the best pitchers in baseball last year after being like a nothing prospect, basically. Um, uh, I think guys like this have very little margin for error, right? So like if Quintana went from 93 to 91 to 89, he would be almost out of baseball. Or if he threw 97, like, okay, at 93, he can still be quite good. And so I think what we've seen is, like, guys who start from a higher velocity baseline can lose a bunch of ticks. Felix Hernandez went from 100 to 90, and he's still an above-average major league pitcher. If Jose Quintana lost 10 miles an hour fastball, he would be a peanut fender. <laughs> well, he'd be, I mean, he would be like a marginal college pitcher at that point, at least in terms of velocity. Right. I mean, yeah, he would not be in baseball if he lost 10 miles an hour in his fastball. So that is, like, it's not that scouts are wrong to value velocity, but I think, you know, as we talk about bias, the focus on upside and the focus on long-term value and how well, how long can this guy do this ignores the fact that while Quintana can throw in the low 90s and command his stuff, he's going to be very good. And that was true of Doug Fister for five years, and Doug Fister was one of the best pitchers in baseball, and it's probably going to be true of Kyle Hendricks for the next few years. You know, these guys probably aren't going to end up in the Hall of Fame, but if they have 10 or 12 year careers with six years of that being, you know, at a very high level, if, like, if your upside is Dan Heron, we shouldn't be like, well, that's not high enough upside to value you. Dan Heron was a really good pitcher. Is it the teams want, and I understand this too, is it they're like, they, they want a guy, um, and perhaps like, you know, someone like Noah Syndergaard is the best example of this. Yeah. And, uh, to be honest, probably Jose Fernandez before he passed was also an example of this. It's a pitcher who, when you look at him, you're like, this guy has so few weaknesses. I mean, he's a pitcher, yeah. and so therefore he's vulnerable. Um, but we could theoretically have him forever, you know, or we could have him until he's, until he's 40. Is it, is it, is it because maybe there's a sense that, 
there's a there's a desire to to be able to lean on to, on that type of pitcher for a while, or on on you know a young pitcher, and when you know that he's that he has that uh, limited margin for error, do you think well? No, and we're just going to have to look elsewhere as soon as he's good. So we're going to, you know, we're going to just avoid him altogether. I th- I think it's more of a trust factor, and especially if you're a contending team who's looking towards the postseason. Like, you know, let's throw Tanner Roark into this case, right? Like Tanner Roark was maybe the Nationals' best starting pitcher last year, not that far behind Max Scherzer in terms of results. But, like, the Nationals were not that excited to hand Tanner Roark the ball in the postseason. They were not like, oh, good, we got Scherzer, Roark, who needs that Strasburg guy? Like, uh, as, as we saw, they were just trying to trade for Chris Sale this winter. Like, they looked at Tanner Roark and were like, well, that was really nice 200 innings with a two-and-a-half ERA or whatever you gave us. Um, but we're still a little skeptical that you can do that against really good hitters in the playoffs, and maybe we're only going to let you pitch, like, four innings. So I think with these guys who are command, change-up, uh, location guys, um, and Quintana has developed out of this to some degree. He used to throw 91, now he throws 93. So his velocity has spiked over the last few years. Um, but I think he's still somewhat in this mix. And I think we even saw, like, the John Coppolello, who's the GM of the Braves, you know, they were trying to trade for Chris Sale, and someone asked him about Quintana as, like, a fallback, and he said, you know, Jose Quintana's a nice pitcher, but he's not Chris Sale. And I think executives and people who put teams together see these big divisions between guys like Syndergaard and Fernandez and Scherzer who just strike everybody out. And you're like, they're going to get guys out on their own. I'm not concerned about what's going to happen when they face good hitting versus when you have these contact pitchers who, you know, generate weak contact and throw strikes. It's, uh, their teams are a little bit more skeptical that if I put you on the mound in October, I'm going to get seven good innings out of you. Hey, you mentioned a little bit, uh, the sort of like dominance of the pitcher versus, uh, you know, well, essentially the, the distinction between fielding independent dominance and then, uh, you know, run prevention dominance, I right. guess, right? Yeah. Um, we're almost done here, but I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about, uh, the Yankees. The, um, and of course, the Yankees are, um, as, as we mentioned, the Dodgers is a target for Brian Dozier. I think the Yankees are one of a couple competing teams, yeah, for Jose Quintana. Uh, they haven't really been linked to Quintana because they've already got too much starting pitching, honestly. Like, I don't know where they would put Quintana in their rotation. Not that they, I mean, obviously he's good enough to pitch in their rotation, but like, when you look at the Dodgers, they already have like nine starting pitchers. The Dodgers. No, no, oh, wait, did I say Dodgers? I said, I meant Yankees. Oh, well, if you said Yankees, I heard Dodgers. But yeah, the Yankees are a team that makes the most sense, I, I think. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The Yankees should trade for Jose Quintana. The end. Okay, right. The Yankees should trade for Jose Quintana because they either have, uh, I mean, they have uh, some some spots open probably in their rotation. We project their current number five starter to be Chad Green. You can. Well, Chad Green actually is is a player for whom I will go to bat. Baseball metaphor for whom I will go to bat. Um, However, he 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 may not even be their fifth starter. There's also questions about whether Luis Severino will be in the rotation. Uh, yeah. Brian C. Mitchell C. is possible. C.C. Zabathia is their number three. That's a yeah. So here's the, here's the sketchy. question though about about uh, the Yankees. Michael Pineda and Luis Severino yeah. um, were sort of uh, they were two pitchers who um, dramatically underperformed their fielding independent numbers. Correct. Do you see any reason to believe that they will continue to do such a thing? I don't know how familiar you are with Severino, but you have some familiarity with Pineda certainly. I mean, yes, I'm familiar with both pitchers, yeah. Okay, you know that they're both pitchers in the major leagues. Okay, good, all right. Uh, I don't know, do they seem, uh, do they have any of the hallmarks of a pitcher who's 
um, you know, likely to constantly underperform his peripherals. Yeah, I mean, I think with Pineda, uh, what I think uh, Nick Stellini wrote about this a few weeks ago, and Tony Bongino and his kind of American League pitcher wrap-up uh, noted that Pineda gave up the worst quality of contact of any qualified starter in the American League last year. So while he was not as bad as his ERA made him look, uh, FIP was overestimating his performance because he just gave up a bunch of balls that were whacked all over the field. Um, and it was the second year in a row he had done that. One of the most interesting changes is when Pineda came up in Seattle, he was an extreme fly ball guy who pitched at the top of the zone and got a ton of pop-ups. And infield flies are basically strikeouts, right? Like, they're one of the best ways to run a very low batting average on balls in play is get a bunch of pop-ups. And Pineda did that his rookie year. And then now in New York, he's a ground ball guy who pitches at the bottom of the zone, and he gets no pop-ups ever. So we've seen, like, a actual shift in approach that has led to probably a degradation in ball-on-contact um uh, results for Pineda, but it, it'd be interesting to see if, like, the Yankees just tell him to stop it. Right? Like, at some point, I wonder if they just go to him and be like, hey, this ground ball thing isn't working for you. Why don't you go back to pitching at the top of the zone, use your high-spin fastball, get pop-ups again, maybe you'll be better. So does anyone, do we know, uh, um, is that a situation where Michael Pineda decides that he's going to uh, to, to begin utilizing that approach, or is that uh, is that someone in the Yankees who probably told him to do that? Uh, I mean, it's hard to say. I, I don't think we know for sure. Generally, I would think that kind of thing is going to be an organizational decision. But pitchers do have the ability to choose where they're going to where they're going to pitch and how they're going to tinker. And Pineda could have said, "Hey, look, Yankee Stadium, that right field porch is scary. I already have problems with left-handers anyway. I don't necessarily want to, you know, have those guys just golfing the ball down the line. I'm going to pitch down in the zone because I'm scared of the ballpark." If that's what happened, the Yankees should probably intervene and be like, whatever, we would rather have you give up a couple extra home runs, but not give up all these line drives in the gap. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll trade three or four more home runs for 25 more pop-ups. You know, I was actually compelled, because Nick Salini just wrote about Mike Mussina, I was compelled to look up some historical park factors for the Yankees, yeah. uh, Yankees ballpark. That ballpark was strange in that I think it gave up like 20% more, perhaps even a number greater than that, 20% more home runs uh, than league average for left-handed batters. Yeah. And I think gave up, overall gave up more home runs. Um, so all sorts of batters in the league average park. But it's, it was almost, uh, uh, it was almost unbelievably neutral during, yeah. um, at least the last couple decades of, of its existence. I, I think one of the things that people, uh, and you know, I think I got this wrong for a really long time too, is basically equating the park factor with the home run factor, right? Like any park, like Camden Yards has the same reputation of like, it's a small bar, bar, ballpark, it's an easy place to hit home runs, therefore it's a hitter's paradise. Or Cincinnati has this reputation where Great American Ballpark, easy place to hit home runs, must be offensive friendly. But if you have these kind of smaller uh, ballparks where the ball can climb over the wall, you also have a lot less space for outfielders to cover and a lot less chances for doubles and triples to fall in. Um, so you, you oftentimes increase the number of home runs at the expense of doubles and triples. That's not a, a one-for-one trade-off, but if, it, if the magnitude of the, the increase in home runs is not... Um, you know, even to the decrease in the in the other kinds of extra base hits, you're not going to get this huge spike in offense. And so um, I think people just kind of look at ballpark dim- dimensions and say, oh, you know, easy to have a home run, to, you know, this ballpark. It must be a hitter's park when, in reality, the best hitter's park in baseball is in Colorado, and that place is enormous. <laughs> that field is gigantic, and that's one of the reasons why it's such a good offensive ballpark is because there's so much room for balls to fall in. You know, uh, this is this idea of power not uh, not merely being a function of uh, uh, home run hitting is something that I discussed 
uh, with Eric Longenig on the last his last appearance in the program, and that's that's interesting, and it might be a theme for Eric and I in particular to discuss because, or to continue to discuss because you know it's uh, when you're evaluating prospects, uh, and I think we, I think he the, the the idea rose out of a conversation about Michael Brantley. Who I don't know if he's ever topped 20 home runs or whatever. Maybe he has once. Or but the point is that he hit uh, 50 doubles, I think. Yeah. You know, in consecutive seasons, and <clears throat> maybe some of that's a uh, product of stretching singles and the doubles. But it's also just uh, hitting the ball hard and um, and maybe hitting it to certain areas of the ballpark. Uh, but that that idea that power is not merely home runs, and right. you see the opposite too, like a player like Todd Frazier who. Who hits more home runs than he does doubles? Yeah, and you say how productive is that? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think about that. Ben Zobrist is another good example of this. Right, is a guy who like has real power, not a huge home run guy, but Ben Zobrist hits the ball hard. And like, if you guys, if you guys come up with, or if there's guys on base when Zobrist is is hitting, he's got a good chance to drive them in because he's going to hit the ball in the outfield. He's not a slap hitter. And so I think the idea that power is not home runs is an important one for us to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should remember that. We should totally remember that. Let's end on that note to better ensure that we do remember it, Dave Cameron. Okay. Well, I will end there. uh, Cameron, you have fulfilled your obligation to the program? I'm happy to hear that. That's good. Very good. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us, Dave Cameron. That has been Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Remember that time. I didn't remember last time. (laughs) 